Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Okay, Shiloh, we are ready to get into Third Nephi now. How are you feeling about that? This is awesome. I love these chapters. I'm actually really excited to start getting into the words of Christ. That's what I'm really excited about. And so it's kind of like everything getting up to that point. But yeah, I, I really like these chapters. So I've talked a lot about, about Gid Gadoni over the years. So I'm excited to talk a little bit about that and, and see what else pops up. Yeah, so we, we kind of get a little more of the Gadiant and Robbers here, kind of rounds out the, the rest of the story that we're going to hear about them among the Nephites, that is. So, however, we start out here with chapter one. This is supposed to be the fulfillment of the prophecy of Samuel the Lamanite. So we're going to start off here with the, the people witnessing the sign of his birth, of Christ's birth. And the people are going to be converted, and then that's going to sort of be juxtaposed against the increasing wickedness and power of the Gadian robbers. Chapter 2, they're going to start having some serious issues with the Gadian robbers, and Nephites and Lamanites are going to unite to protect themselves. So we kind of have a repeat in theme of the the war chapters in Alma all over again here, just sort of a a condensed version of that. Chapter three, we have an account of the actual war between the Nephites and the Gadianton robbers. We get uh, the story of Gidgadoni, which has some very interesting principles in it and a good discussion there. And then chapter four, they destroy the Gadianton robbers completely, you know, mostly in battle. Uh, some of them they convert here in chapter five. They're got them in prison and they're going to tell them either to convert or else. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best kind of conversion. Yeah, that's the, be- that's the best kind of conversion, right? <laughs> then we have a very interesting and uh, first time ever, apparently in the Book of Mormon, uh, we look back to see interjection by Mormon himself who kind of introduces himself. This seems a very late point in the Book of Mormon for Mormon to introduce himself like this. It lends itself a little bit to the theory that maybe Mormon didn't start in his actual composition of the record in a chronological way. You know, like we thought, maybe the war chapters in Alma were sort of an earlier writing of Mormon as he was compiling all the records and everything. And so uh, to have an interjection this late in the book mean that maybe he hasn't been writing for as long as we've been reading, right? Right. <laughs> and so that'd be an interesting discussion to have. Chapter six, we have the people going through that, what we call the pride cycle, maybe again, you know, they're getting rich and we're having divisions of class. 
And then we get an issue with the government where we have a recreation all over again of the secret combination, separation out of Jacob and his people. And then we have the final destruction, you could say, of the Nephite government system. Lasts about, what, 100 years. Almost exactly 100 years, this Nephite system of judges lasts, and then it's destroyed here, finally, when the chief judge is murdered and the people split up into to different groups. You know, that's an interesting discussion as well, considering, you know, they had kings for about 500 years. And uh, here, the chief judges only last for about 100 years. And then we have it uh, ending off in chapter 7 with a Nephite going out and preaching and, and doing miracles and sort of emulating Christ's ministry, actually. You know, it's, it's almost like a... a new world emulation of that in preparation for his coming. So, yeah. So starting off on chapter, chapter one here. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like a new Elias. Yeah. 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 It's almost, you know, we've got some John the Baptist type stuff going on there where he talks about he's baptizing people into repentance and all that, but then he's also doing miracles, uh, raises his brother from the dead. So we have some sort of microcosm of, of what Christ is doing on the other side and, and Nephi going out and prophesying and, and trying to prepare the people, just like you said, Elias for Christ's actual appearance unto them. So, yeah. So here in chapter one, I, you know, this has always been a really interesting chapter for me because of how Nephi interacts with God the day before Jesus is born. And so it's this interesting concept. Like was Jesus's spirit, not there with with Mary in you know the day before he's born. I've always man. I've always had this question. <laughs> Have you ever too? <laughs> I've I've never known whether or not you know was, was his spirit actually there. Was it a projection of the the Holy Spirit? You know, it, but he says, "Come, I into the world." So it's it seems to be like a first person thing. But Jesus is still in spirit body. I don't know. I'm, I I don't know. There's anything been really talked about it, so I'm not going to project. But it is a question I've always had. But uh, right here in chapter one, we have a place now where the Nephites are on their way down on the price cycle. Now, for me in in this, the price cycle really does kick along in Helaman and in Third Nephi. That that's where this price cycle that we've talked about in the Book of Mormon really happens, and it's really pronounced because they're righteous and they're wicked, and they're righteous, and then the Lamanites are righteous, and then they're wicked, and then they combined, and then they're both righteous, and then they're both wicked, and then they, and then they kind of separate again, and then they repeat the pattern. And it happens like in years. Sometimes it's even in the same the same year. And yeah. I'm left scratching my head of this pride cycle wondering, I think we need to reevaluate this narrative. I think we need to reevaluate the pride cycle narrative because I don't know exactly how useful it is because of how fast it happens. Because I, I can I can say that, you know. Yes, maybe it's reflective of life that we go through those cycles ourselves, periods of righteousness and wickedness and righteousness and wickedness. But just exactly how deeply converted are we really? If that if that's our if we're on the wheels of this, you know, pride cycle and we're just up and down all the time, really what is the level of the conversion of those who this is speaking to? And how deeply converted are they when they are righteous if 5 years later they are not just wicked, but so wicked that they destroy their entire society and government. Well, remember that this pride cycle that we we see spelled out in the scriptures is 
a perception of the prophet at the time, right? So he's recording what he's seeing and 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 experiencing among the people as he's ministering to them. And so some of this is is his perception of the general attitudes and spirituality of the people. And so sometimes that can, uh, you know, that personal perspective might be a little more, how do you say, higher resolution, close up, zoomed in than a, a more aggregate picture of, of the actual condition of the people. It's, it's hard to say. But uh, in any case, yeah, I do love how here right at the beginning of uh, chapter one of Third Nephi, we have this repeat uh, a la Alma, right? So Nephi, the son of Helaman, says he departs out of the land of Zarahemla, giving charge unto his, his son Nephi, who was his eldest son, concerning the plates of brass and all the records which had been kept, and all those things which had been kept sacred from the departure of Lehi out of Jerusalem. And he departed out of the land, and whither he went, no man knoweth. So... Basically, almost exactly like Alma, where Alma gives the charge of all the records and everything to Helaman, and then he leaves as if to go to Melik, they say, and nobody hears from him anymore. So assumption, maybe he's been translated, who knows what's going on with, with Nephi. And then we have this great Book of Mormon Christmas story, right? <laughs> this is uh, where... The people who didn't believe the signs have set aside this day. And this is this is kind of odd to me, the way that this is told. And uh, we have to kind of guess at some societal uh, nuances here. They've set aside this day that they're going to kill everyone who believes in the sign if the sign doesn't happen. Yeah, why not immediately? Yeah, why not even if they already believe it's time? I'm not sure. It just, it seems odd. It also seems odd to me that Laconius is the chief judge, he says here. And why couldn't the Nephite government do anything to deal with this apparent problem, right? That these people were going to put the believers to death. Now, is this just like, uh, just like roving mobs? that we're going to attack and and kill Christians. Uh, I'm not sure really what's going on here. I don't, I don't know how to imagine this, but I do really love the response of Nephi on this. He doesn't, you know, go to Laconius and say, hey, we need an army to protect us or anything like that. What does he do? It says in verse 11, well, starting in verse 10, his heart was exceedingly sorrowful. And it came to pass that he went out and bowed himself down upon the earth and cried mightily to his God in behalf of his people. He had those who were about to be destroyed because of their faith in the tradition of their fathers. And it came to pass that he cried mightily unto the Lord all that day. And I know people have brought this up before, like with Enos, where Enos prays all day and all night. And they're like, when was the last time you did that? And, and I've never done that. And... I don't know that it's necessarily about the time frame here. What it is it that's happening? You know, we see this pattern with prophets where they often have to spend all this time emptying themselves and struggling in the spirit until they can get to the point where they really are filled with pure love and the spirit can speak to them in a way that they can truly understand. 
And that struggling in the spirit and overcoming our pride and all of our assumptions and our identity issues and our hatred and, and repentance and all these things that have to happen within us, you know, kind of that beatitudes uh, process, you could say, it can take time because of how often I mean, I I see in a microcosm like the pride cycle happening within our heart as we're <laughs> going through this time of prayer, and I just see Nephi going through that right, and uh, we can see sort of the the parallels in that. Like I said, back with Alma, we can see that with Enos, we can see that with Nephi, Nephi's father, when he's uh, dealing with all of the wickedness of the people as well. And so I just I just see Nephi here spending all this time in prayer, getting himself in a place where he can receive this great revelation that comes next. And isn't that great in verse 13 that the voice comes in the very first thing that he says, that the Lord says to him, lift up your head and be of good cheer. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like the number one message that angels bring is fear not. And we see so many places here where Nephites, even in looking to God, it's it's out of this concept of fear. They feared God or, or they feared their enemies or they feared this or they feared that. Whereas the anti-Nephi Lehi's, it didn't say they feared God. It says that they had love for God and love for their fellow men, that they, their hatred was towards sin, but they but their motivating factor in Alma 26 was love. But yet we see all over the place, this word fear enter the narrative. And we see it with Samuel the Lamanite. He was brought in to bring glad tidings. He was was initially told to go tell all the Nephites about the sign of the coming of the Son of God. And they rejected him. And so he got to come back and teach repentance to them. And then he still gave him the good tidings. But all of these messengers that are come, they always come to bring good tidings. And... A lot of the times it comes in the couched in terms of repentance. And, I, you know, it's unfortunate for the wicked who are not able to see the joy of that message. Now, I know for me, going through deconstructive periods and going through repentance processes in my own life, and then being dissatisfied with the way that I'm living the gospel and the way that the gospel is landing for me, and realizing that I talk a lot about God, but I don't actually have a lot of experiencing with God. And even being able to say that was a really bitter pill to swallow (laughs) in my life and realizing I'm not experiencing God and I need to repent. I need to see God new. I need to see myself differently. I need to see my, my fellow men differently. And that message may sound great. It may sound glorious, but it really attacks the very fundamental and underpinnings of identity of who and what we think we are and the justifications for how we live our lives and the things we believe in. I mean, it, it can be a very harrowing experience. And so when Nephi is out here preaching repentance, it should be a joyful occasion, but the wicked always take the truth to be hard, right? But the first thing the Lord comes along here and says is lift up your head and be of good cheer. Not just good cheer. You know, by the way, you're not going to die. <laughs> that That's an added benefit, but good cheer in that the savior of the world is coming into this world. He's coming in. He's going to be made flesh, right? The time is at hand. And on this night shall the sign be given. And on the morrow come I into the world to show unto the world that I will fulfill all that I have, all that which I have caused to be spoken 
by the mouth of my holy prophets. Behold, I come into my own to fulfill the things which I have made known unto the children of men from the foundations of the world, and to do the will both of the Father and of the Son, of the Father because of me, and of the Son because of my flesh. And behold, the time is at hand, and this night shall the sign be given. And it shall come to pass that the words which came unto Nephi were fulfilled according to as they had been spoken. And behold, at the going down of the sun, there was no darkness. And the people began to be astonished because there was no darkness when the night came. Now, part of this whole thing, I think, of why they weren't killed initially and why that date was, was set apart is, you know, a lot of people were converted at the sign. You know, when this sign happens, you know, the next, you know, I don't know, eight verses going to talk about how there were a lot of converts. But yet we learn in the beginning of chapter two that most of those people who were converted because of the sign actually fell away. Yeah. Because they begin to see that, uh, in, in fact, in verse two, in chapter one of, or verse one of chapter two, it says, and it came to pass that thus passed away the ninth and the ninety and fifth year, and the people began to forget those signs and wonders which they had heard, and began to be less and less astonished at a sign or a wonder from heaven, insomuch that they began to be hard in their hearts and blind in their minds, and began to disbelieve all which they had heard and seen, imagining up some vain thing in their hearts that it was wrought by men and not by the power and Oh, and by the power of the devil to lead away and to deceive the hearts of the people. And thus did Satan get possession of the hearts of the people again, insomuch that they did blind their eyes and lead them away to believe the doc- that the doctrine of Christ was a foolish and a vain thing. See, in a lot of ways, I think, you know, Satan may have been playing the long game on this one. You know, he, he the, had actually way back when in Ammonihah, he got those people all riled up. And they immediately killed those people in Ammonihah, the women of the children. They got riled up. They got angry. They threw the women of the children into the fire right there. Boom. But we're told that their souls went directly to God, that they were saved. And if you're Satan, you may win a short victory, but you just lost the war, right? But in this one, he plays more of a long game and he's like, yeah, let's just postpone this. You know, Satan knew what was going to go on on the other side of the world. It's not like he doesn't, he couldn't tell what was going on over there. It's not like he couldn't have killed all these people right here and right there. But if he would have killed them, he would have saved, he would have killed them all in their, in their righteousness, right? But by postponing this and by having everybody rely on signs, it's like the thing I've talked before, Ben, about in the Book of Mormon, it's really fascinating to see. And I've seen how the Nephite way of doing this ends up being less deep in the heart. The Lamanite way of doing this ends up being deeper. But there are several stories where when people take an oath to follow God, take an oath to enter the church to be baptized, there are times that are they, they are specifically converted prior to being baptized. And those times when they're converted before being baptized, it sticks. And it's deep. But then there are those times where people are converted, where they just take the oath, and it's like they work on their conversion afterwards. They try to live into their oath, as opposed to their oath was just a manifestation of their previous conversion, that they they just take the oath and then they try to live into the oath itself. And in that case, they just, it's this pride cycle. It goes over and over and over again. And I see that here with these Nephites. Anybody who joined them, they took the oath, they saw the sign, they joined the church, they took the oath. But then at that point, it just kind of became lackluster because they lacked the conversion. And that's really where I'm at is 
I just don't see that level of deep conversion here among these Nephites. You know, back to Nephi's prayer and the response he gets, I wonder if this is just like total, you know, amazing coincidence that the Nephite, the wicked Nephite set this date and this is the day you're going to be killed. And guess what? That just happens to completely coincide with when Mary's going to go into labor, you know, like, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, thus the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And um, right. I here's what I wonder, and, and there's there's just a few things surrounding this this thought pattern, is that I, I wonder if this is almost like Nephi's brother of Jared moment, right? He is praying in sincere faith to his God for the love that he has for his people and seeking the Lord to show his hand in this sort of figuratively, like the brother of Jared. And the Lord has to respond to his faith because he prays in faith. And so the Lord says, okay, I'll come tomorrow. And I, I just wonder, you know, it's not like we changed the Lord's plans and that, that makes anything happen, but uh, the Lord does have blessings available to us that can be greater based on our exercising of our faith and can, you know, and so I, I kind of see this as as potentially Nephi's sort of brother Jared moment, right? Where the Lord had this blessing in store for Nephi as he was able to exercise the faith in asking for it. And um, he says, okay, you know, I'll come. If uh, Jesus had been born one day later, it wouldn't have made a lick of difference to anybody in the new, in the old world, right? But it mattered to Nephi and his people right now that the Lord would actually you know, physically manifest himself unto their deliverance. And so I just, I love how that happens. And like I said, could possibly be this consequence, you know, of him being born on that day, a consequence of Nephi's exercising of faith, along with all of those that believed and were waiting for the sign. I love how in verse 17, it says, they began to know that the son of God must shortly appear you know, because of all the signs that they had seen and stuff. And so these things are so obvious to them. Um, even though later, as you were saying in chapter two, the people, they start dismissing the signs, you know, saying, oh, they're not that really that big a deal. It's just, well, so what? You know, there was some uh, something that happened that night that made it light. That doesn't really mean anything. Who cares? And I wonder what what signs do we see that we so easily dismiss? Right, that the Lord really puts into our lives that we, that really are quite miraculous, but we come to think they're mundane or commonplace, and uh, we become less and less astonished. Right, and they can be something very simple in our life, and we can miss those if we are if we start taking them for granted. Um, I don't know. I can't think of any examples off the top of my head. Maybe that's maybe that's the problem, right? That I can't think of examples <laughs> off my head. That's my problem is that I'm less and less astonished. But uh, I believe that to be true. That if we simply will look for them, you know, they'll they'll come to our mind, and and we'll see uh, the miracles that are that are in our life, and and we'll realize that uh, we need to be more grateful for the small things, the moments that. God is manifesting himself in, in every moment of our life. 
and to not let ourselves be, as it says, less and less astonished. You know, as a matter of as in a matter of example. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I knew you'd come up with something. <laughs> <laughs> I've got an example. Uh, you know, in two thousand and one, in October two thousand and one, I remember after the planes had hit the towers in New York on nine eleven. And everybody was anxiously watching conference. That was the first conference after this whole thing. All of us watched it with anxious anticipation. And the very first Saturday morning session was a talk given by President Hinckley. And the talk itself is called Living in the Fullness of Times. And it was a fantastic talk. And in it, he had said something really powerful that I didn't pick up. And it was an institute teacher that had come in the next week and had said, did you guys catch it? Did you guys catch it? I'm like, no, catch what? He's like, got to go back and re-listen to it. So here it is from the 2001 October session. President Hinckley said, the era in which we live is in the fullness of time spoken of in the scriptures when God has brought together all of the elements of previous dispensations. From the day in he, that he and his beloved son manifest themselves to the boy Joseph, there has been a tremendous cascade of enlightenment poured out upon the world. The hearts of men have turned to their fathers in fulfillment of the words of Malachi. Wow. So we've had the fulfillment of the words of Malachi. But he doesn't stop there. President Hinckley continues, The vision of Joel has been fulfilled, wherein he declared, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant of whom the Lord shall call. Unquote. Well, there it is. Hmm. Straight up, two prophecies fulfilled. You have the turning of the hearts towards the, the, of the children of the fathers as, as a fulfillment of the words of Malachi, and the vision of Joel has been fulfilled. So we're literally living post the the sun, you know, the the sun turning, the, the moon turning to blood, and the sun losing its light, where people are dreaming dreams and seeing visions. We are post that. That's been fulfilled. That's happened. I mean, that's not, that's like the top five <laughs> apocalyptic events, right? I mean, that that that's right there. Now I don't know what he saw. I don't know what President Hinckley saw that I missed. I completely missed that he said it was fulfilled, let alone the actual fulfillment of it. So I don't know. But here it is. It's these things that are these spiritual signs and wonders that are happening, that are fulfilled, and we completely miss them. Yeah. I mean, it says, you know, not just less and less astonished, but forget, you know, and I, I can't tell you how many times I've, I know that I've read through different prophecies about what things would be fulfilled. And I'm like, oh yeah, that thing. Oh yeah, that thing. So uh, they can be easily forgotten and you know, we can, we can miss out on some things that the Lord has for us in terms of trying to give us reassurance and guidance in our lives. Uh, so the people that were looking for them and, and searching for them were receiving this and, and seeing 
the evidence of the love of God and and the fulfillment of of all these things in preparation for for Christ coming. All those things again to the intent, as we talked about last time, that they might believe and be prepared for Christ to come. There's this part at the end of chapter one where it starts to get into a discussion about the Gadian robbers. It says in in verse twenty nine. And there was also a cause of much sorrow among the Lamanites, for behold, they had many children who did grow up and began to wax strong in years, but they became for themselves and were led away by some who were Zoramites by their lyings and their flattering words to join those Gadian robbers. So I kind of see this as, as almost an antithesis of the stripling warriors, right? That instead of these young people sticking around to defend or, or be true to, to certain covenants um, or promises that they, or oaths they had, kept, they had made, so to speak. They make secret oaths and join with the Gadiant robbers and, and rebel. But the really sad part here is that in these later chapters, there actually is this war between the Gadiant robbers and the Nephites. And you end up having these children who are literally fighting against their families, and these people are killing each other. The children killing their families, the families killing the children. And yeah, that's that's something that's not always brought up in the context of some wars, but in this one it must have been particularly terrible because you didn't just have two nations of people that didn't know each other that were you know, uh, hacking it out, but you had two groups of people who had had previous relationships and sometimes even close family relationships who were out there on the field of battle murdering each other. And, uh, man, what that's got to do to a society and a people, I don't, I don't know, but the, the Nephites, you know, causes them quite a bit of trouble here with having to deal with this. Yeah, we're going to find out that these Gadianton robbers, and, and it is, it's such a weird thing because now it's not the Nephite-Lamanite dichotomy that it was before, right? Now it's kind of the Gadianton robbers are now the new enemy and they got a lot of Nephites in them. They got a lot of Lamanites in them. And so when you're fighting, you're fighting families now and you're fighting people that were once your your inner group of friends. And, you know, this isn't... <sighs> old grudges that have existed for 500 years or so. And so we start to see how these wars started to take started to take uh, shape. And, and so here in chapter two, we find that the Lamanites and the Nephites begin to, to coalesce and to kind of group in together. And then by chapter three, you have the leader of the Gadiantans, whose name is Gideonhi. And Gideonhi ends up sending this really long, very interesting letter to Laconius, <laughs> the le- the governor of the ne- of the Nephites, as it were. And it's interesting to me because of the claims that he's making, that Gideon High is making. And, and so just to start, he says in chapter three, verse two, Laconius, most noble and chief governor of the land, behold, I write this epistle unto you and do give unto you exceedingly great praise because of your firmness and also the firmness of your people in maintaining that which you suppose to be your right and liberty. And you do stand well as if you were supported by the hand of a God in defense of your liberty and your property and your country or that which you do call so. 
And it seemeth a pity unto me, most noble Laconius, that you should be so foolish and vain as to suppose that you can stand against so many brave men who are at my command, and who do now at this time stand in their arms and do await with great anxiety for the word to go down to the Nephites and to destroy them. And I, knowing of their unconquerable spirit, have proved them in the field of battle, and knowing their everlasting hatred towards you, because of the many wrongs which you have done unto them, Therefore, if they should come down against you and visit you with utter destruction, and I have written this epistle, sealing with mine own hand, feeling for your welfare because of your firmness in that which you believe to be right and your noble spirit in the field of battle. I mean, this is just weird language. and you know, it's, it's very patronizing. And it's also this, this sense that they have a hatred against the Nephites for kicking them out for killing them. I mean, so the Ganyat and robbers are like killing, supposedly, to get gain and to run these secret oaths. And then they get kicked out and then they feel like they shouldn't have been kicked out for killing. Something is going on here. Either these secret combinations are not functioning in the way that we have always thought they were, or the secret band are completely insane. Well, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna go with the insane one, but what's your thought? <laughs> I'm not against them being completely insane. I think that's that's interesting. But I think the context here of secret society may have an alternate meaning based on the context of how he's writing here. I mean, basically, I mean, for instance, in verse seven, he says that he wants basically Laconius. He doesn't want him to give up and be the slaves of the, the, the Gedeons. He wants Laconius to give up so that they can enter into the same organization and secret society. Well, here's the thing. I mean, do you remember watching The Incredibles, the Disney's Incredibles, and the whole thing like when everybody's super, no one is? Right. And the same thing here is like when everybody knows the secret, it's not a secret anymore. Right? Yeah. <laughs> if you bring everybody into the secret, it it, it kind of loses its secretness, you know? And so in other words, but he wants them to all come into the secretness. And so for something, for me, that is showing that maybe the secret thing, we see these things happening in secret, it says, as if it's the unknown. But he says in verse seven, or in other words, yield unto yourselves up unto us and unite with us and become acquainted with our secret works and become our brethren that ye may be likened to us, not our slaves, but our brethren and partners in all of our substance. And behold, I swear unto you, if you will do this with an oath, you shall not be destroyed. But if you will not do this, I swear unto you with an oath that on the morrow of the month, I will come down and basically kill you. So this is interesting is it's all about the oath again. Nephites are very oath heavy, you know, right? They're all about making the oath before the conversion. And here it's all about making an oath to be a part of the secret group. And I'm wondering if this secret, this word secret has anything to do with the word mystery. It has everything to do with some kind of religious group that is based on some kind of materialistic prosperity gospel, as it were, where to be able to get one's resources, that they have their myths, their narratives, and even their their rights, like like their rituals and rights, their guild, like their own guild, kind of like a... Uh, most ancient societies and most ancient uh, vocations like masonry or carpentry or even priests, they had what were called the craft. 
And the craft was that each one of these usually had some kind of allegory or story that they would tell from apprentices all the way up to the masters of their craft, of their art. So mason, the mason art or the carpenter's art or even the priest's art. And, and so there was a story that you told and you participated in the story ritualistically. And you acted out certain scenes, and in each certain scenes, there would be secret handshakes, or there would be secret tokens or secret signs that would demonstrate the proficiency by which you had attained in that particular vocation. Uh, Not anywhere unlike how we do things with our current education system, with an associate's degree, you know, a high school degree, an associate's, a bachelor's, master's, a doctorate. Once you have that paper proving that you have had that kind of training, then you can go out and get a job. But if you're thinking thousands of years ago where they don't have centralized education and papers to prove it, how do you go about and move from one city into another region and then to show the new the new person that you have all the skills and training? Well, they did that through these stories. If you knew the story and the handshakes up to a certain point, that demonstrated your proficiency in your skill and trade. But what happened was is sometimes people would obtain to the highest degree and then they would start turning around and instead of training people to become as proficient as they were, they would start selling and trading away the signs and tokens that of their trade to people who had not yet earned it and they would just trade it away so that that person would then go into another, another land and would then give the parts to the new journeyman or as a journeyman, they go into a new land and into a new foreman reenact the ritual as it were, and then pass themselves off as a higher grade proficiency than they were. And this was in the priest's guild, in the priest's craft, this is this is where the term priestcraft comes from. To be able to sell the spirits and to sell your tokens and sell your signs for money. This is the this was the basis of priestcraft. And where priests started to go through the temple ceremonies and they would go out into the periphery and as opposed to having people actually arise through the the temple ceremonies, they would simply sell the signs and tokens so that people could use them to be able to then pass themselves off as higher level priests than they were. Same thing happened in carpentry. But the thing is, is when you do that, you destroy the, the validity of your guild. If you bring people and you show people the signs and tokens who are not worthy of it, it, that secrecy destroys the validity of it. So in this kind of secrecy, I'm wondering if this kind of secret work has a lot to do with a type of like ancient guild network where they had built themselves up certain ways of acquiring money and going about doing things and their own guild in a religious setting of how to make money and of how to be able to support yourself in philosophies and things like that. So when we talk about these secret works, he's, he's bringing Laconius into it He's talking religiously, but and he's talking about the secret work. So I'm wondering if this secret thing has something more to do with guild work than it has to do with like actual like secrecy for secrecy's sake. Yeah, I think the word secret probably has a different uh, connotation here than than just hidden, like we might uh, see it as. You know, as you're you're talking, I was thinking about the phrase, you know, beware of unearned wisdom, and uh, that can be. Uh, the case a lot, you know, a lot of times we might want to teach somebody something, uh, something that we have learned that's very important and profound. And uh, we'll spend a lot of time trying to teach them and then explain that to them. And they just won't get it. 
And a lot of times they won't get it because they haven't had the life experience that allows them to contextualize and take the wisdom you just imparted into them and actually, you know, add it to themselves, so to speak, like actually fit it into their experience and and make something of it in their own person. And I think uh, that's what that type of thing could do. You know, you're you're giving something to somebody, some knowledge to somebody without the actual experience and and wisdom that needs to go along with it in order to to know how to actually do good with it and so instead that can be used for for evil purposes rather than good and so i i see here with the gadian robbers um there's a, there's a lot of things that we just don't really understand and that's intentional you know uh, many times in the scriptures when we come across especially in the book of mormon i should say in particular, the Book of Mormon. When we come across this discussion of these secret combinations, secret works, the prophets are said, "Well, you know, we don't, we don't uh, say anything about that and, and and publish it to the world because it's it's supposed to be uh, it's just wickedness, you know, and and that's supposed to be hidden, and yet then Satan puts these things into the hearts. So the intention isn't that we know exactly what's going on here, <laughs> and uh, the. But we can see the fruits of of their works and their design is for power and wealth and they accomplish that by murder, you know, and and it's it's lives for gain. And and however it is that they accomplish that, I don't know. I don't necessarily need to know. I know that whatever it is that the gospel does, it's going to be something that is similar to the opposite of that. Following that, in verse 16, Laconius responds to Gideon High's message, and he's he's a little bit shocked at just how bold Gideon High is and, and and the narrative that he's living under. He he knows that Gideon High knows that this stuff is a lie. But he begins to prophesy to his people, Laconius begins to prophesy to the Nephites, and basically s- scares them to death. He, he begins to prophesy great things, but it says in verse 15, as the Lord liveth, except you repent of all your iniquities and crying to the Lord, you will in no wise be delivered out of the hands of those Gadianton robbers. And so great and marvelous were the words and prophecies of Laconius that they did cause fear to come upon all the people, and they did exert themselves in their might to do according to the words of Laconius. See, Ben, this what's coming out to me right now in this is, yes, Laconius may have been using some very passionate words, Yes, he he was getting his people rallied up. Yes, they are precarious times. However, people who are motivated out of fear to do what's right are not motivated for the long run. It, that's a very short-term motivation. Because it's a very moment, it's a very moment and a very specific event case. And once that case is over, then at that point, it's all about, it's, it's all about the moment. We got to, we have to convert to God right now so that we can get through this moment. It's not about, it's not about a life of conversion. It's about just having God's help right here in the right now. And so it says, and, and this is one of my favorite things is their solution is in verse 18. Now, the chiefest of all the chief captains and the commander of all the armies of the Nephites was appointed and his name was Gid-Gadoni. Now, and I love this verse. 
Now it came to, now it was a custom among the Nephites to appoint for their chief captains, save it were in times of wickedness, someone that had the spirit of revelation and prophecy. Therefore, this Gidgadonite was a great prophet among them, and he was also the chief judge. So the people are just righteous enough to have a leader who has a spirit of prophecy and revelation, who, who they consider a great prophet, who's the chief, and who's also the chief judge, which is fantastic. Good for them. But they're just not quite so righteous that they ask Gidgadonai to go to pray to God to get basically divine approval to go kill the Gadiantans in the mountains. Gideon high prays, or Gidgadonai prays. He comes back and he says, no, no, no. God says we can't go up to attack them. We have to wait until they come in to attack us. And so the Nephites are like, okay. So the Nephites are just righteous enough to be able to pick a good leader who can get revelation. They're not righteous enough to get revelation on their own. They're not righteous enough to act on their own to be able to act in love. They're just, just righteous enough to do this. And so they're just righteous enough also to obey, which good for them. They're in this very interesting place. And so they do. And Laconius and Gidgadoni work together and they basically bring everything, all of the land everywhere. And they bring it all into the center of the land and then they fortify it. And they get seven years of provisions. In this, they basically secure themselves where they can take care of themselves against the Gadian robbers. And then they basically slash and burn and torch and destroy everything out of, outside of their little cloistered area. Because that way, the Gadian robbers can't come down and pillage and plunder and to take everything away, which is, which is a pretty interesting uh, military endeavor. It would force the Gadiatan robbers to actually have to start producing something as opposed to just stealing it, because now all the resources are behind a wall and guards and everybody's in one place. So it's kind of a Hail Mary, as it were, that if you lose it, you lose all of your people, but you also have all of your resources that you can live for seven years right there. So it's a pretty interesting strategy, and it ends up paying off for him in the long run. But now we're going to get into some interesting... Uh, some interesting battle play. Yeah, so the Nephites here are operating under this sort of this just war premise. I mean, they want to be aggressive in their war, sort of this preemptive type of attack. They want to go and attack the Gadiant robbers before they destroy them. This is uh, reminiscent of Alma chapter 26 when the Nephites say, hey, let's go kill all the Lamanites. And Ammon says, no, let's not go kill them. Let's go preach the gospel to them. Gidgadonai doesn't say that. He says, uh, well, we have to wait here and defend ourselves. You know, this is kind of goes in with the just war theory a little bit along the lines of Captain Moroni's theories and ideas about how war should be fought. It's totally different from how Nephi and Lehi dealt with this problem. And the, the Lamanites at the time dealt with the problem of, of the Gadianton robbers. But uh, nevertheless, it is, we do see Gidgadonai here at least elevating his people to uh, a little higher principle of uh, not being aggressive in their warfare, at least uh, staying on the defensive. You know, I see here with the Gadian robbers, you know, as we get into chapter four, it says in verses three, four, five, uh, and the robbers could not exist save it were in the wilderness for the want of food. For the Nephites had left their lands desolate and had gathered their flocks and their herds and all their substance, and they were in one body. Therefore, there was no chance for the robbers to plunder and to obtain food, save it were to come up in open battle against the Nephites. 
And then down here in verse 5, it says, For there was no way that they could subsist, save it were to plunder and rob and murder. So this does sort of uh, enlighten the conversation we were having about uh, really what is the nature of these Gadian robbers and, and what they're doing. It does appear that they don't have any particular productive industry amongst themselves, but instead they have devised means by which they are able to rob and plunder and murder, and this is how they subsist. And what they're inviting the Nephites to do is to partake in this system. Now, this, to me, sort of raises the question of, well, you, you, you know, you said if everybody's part of it, then nobody is. But I think that there may be, there's more people in the land, right? And, and we really are, we're focusing geographically, we've got the Gadianton robbers and then the Nephites that have united with uh, some Lamanites. But really, I think there's a lot more other peoples out in the other part. We know that there's a whole huge country up north that Nephi went and preached to and they rejected him, right? And he came back. So there are people all over the land. And really, the discussion here is only of, of one sort of one geographic area. And so I see the Gadianton robbers as inviting the Nephites, hey, come partake of this. We'll tell you how we work this system, how this all works, and then we'll go start infiltrating all the other peoples around us, and you'll see how you can get gain without having to work, right? And and I kind of I've I've heard of someone discussing this along these lines before, but sort of goes back to the whole charge that the Lord gives Adam when he leaves the garden that by the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread all the days of your life that. The idea is that you you are to labor for your support, for your subsistence. You're not to gain that on the backs of other people. You're to to work for your own bread, right? And that apparently these Gadianton robbers have found ways of of getting gain without really doing any work. Um, and so it gets in the Nephite context, it gets called this robbing and plundering and murdering, and uh, we might call it other things today. <laughs> And <laughs> yeah, we'd call it a few other things today. So in chapter four, we have the Gedeon robbers coming down and basically realizing that they have no other option, as you said. So then they come down and they bathe themselves in blood. They shave their heads. They have a lamb skin around their loins. It's not the best military strategy in the world. Um, but then they start coming out to the Nephites and they look ferocious. And it said, and it came to pass that the armies of the Nephites, when they saw the appearance of the army of Gideonhi, had all fallen to the earth, and they delivered their cries to the Lord their God, that he would spare them and deliver them out of the hands of their enemies. And now it came to pass that when the armies of Gideonhi saw this, they began to shout with a loud voice because of their joy. For they had supposed that the Nephites had fallen to fear because of the terror of their armies. But in this thing they were disappointed, for the Nephites did not fear them. May they did fear their God and did supplicate him for protection. Therefore, when the armies of Gideon High did rush upon them, they were prepared to meet them. Yea, with the strength of the Lord, they did receive them. And then it goes on to say that such great was the terrible was the slaughter. that There was never known such a great slaughter among all the people of Lehi since he had left Jerusalem. So this becomes the most quintessential and the, the largest battle that has ever taken place, apparently. So um, Gidgadoni ends up vanquishing the enemy, Gideon High dies, and then we have another nemesis appear named 
Zemnaraha. 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 Why can't I ever say this word? Zemnaraha. Well, it's too close to Zarahemna, which was the Zoramite back which in is, chapter yeah, right? 43. <laughs> and so I always have to pause and be like, okay, is this Zarahemna or Zemnaraha? Yeah, Zemnaraha. Yes. That that's right where my brain was. I'm like Zerahemla. No, no, <laughs> wrong Z word. It's too too many Z words. And anyway, so we have a new nemesis, and he ends up coming along, and he is vanquished. He's hanged on a tree. They end up destroying through a lot of stratagem. They end up destroying the Gadiatan army, basically out of existence. And this is where the Nephites begin to praise the Lord. And so it goes through four verses of them praising the Lord, of being able to vanquish their enemies, preserve their lives. And then anyone, um, this kind of got into what we talked about before, of all the prisoners that were there, uh, they taught the gospel to them. If they converted with an oath, they wouldn't fight anymore. They allowed them to go. And if they didn't, they killed them. And and so it's a pretty good motivation. It's a pretty good <laughs> motivation to, to join any church, I guess. But in this particular case, there were some that that still breathed out threatenings and had the secret murderers in their hearts. So they were put to death. And so this constitutes basically five years of peace. So in, in chapter five, verse seven, it says, and thus had the 20 and the 22nd year passed away and the 20 and third and the 20 and fourth and the 20 and fifth. And yea, even the 20 and fifth year had passed away. And then at this point we get this section where then Mormon just randomly shifts gears for the first time. And he, he like interjects, he breaks the fourth wall, he comes in and he just starts talking to us directly. And he's like, oh, by the way, guys, um, I'm called Mormon and I'm called after the land of Mormon, the land in which Alma did establish the church among the people and the first church, which was established among them after their transgression. So this goes all the way back to like the days of Abinadi, right? Mm-hmm. And it hath become expedient that I, according to the will of God, and that the prayers of those who have gone hence who are the holy ones should be fulfilled according to their faith, should make a record of these things which have been done. So he goes on to talk about the record that he's about ready to make, about how he realizes that God has preserved the promise that people like Enos had made and that Nephi had made and and all these people and all the previous prophets had made, that a record would go forward to their people. And so he talks about how he's the fulfillment of that. He's he's the putting the record together and that there will be a remnant of his people just uh, of the seed of Jacob and they will come back together and receive that record. Okay. So then we end up in in chapter six and in chapter six, this is where the Nephites prosperity once again, after five years, just takes an absolute (laughs) and horrendous nosedive. (laughs) And in such a weird, sad way, it just, it's always the prosperity problem. Uh, you know, Brigham Young even said that the one thing that he feared the most about the saints was not the persecution, but the prosperity. And that could the saints ever truly be able to win with prosperity? Could they keep their humility? Could they keep they keep who and what it means for them to be a true follower of Christ, like that beatitude life? I mean, we even have Jesus coming out saying that it's easier for the, the whole camel to go through than I have a needle. Um, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why is this? Why is it that everything comes down to this concept of prosperity? And it said that because of the the wealth, there were many who were able to receive education, that the ignorant, they were ignorant because of their poverty. They couldn't get an education. 
And some of the rich were humble and some of the, the, those in poverty were humble as well, but they were very much in the minority. So it's just fascinating. It is scarcity stuff. And it affects us to where we think that we actually, it begins to reflect our identity just to have stuff and the right type of stuff, which is absolutely fascinating to me. You know, uh, on this idea that riches apparently seem to lead to uh, pride and uh, a rejection of faith, I don't know exactly why it is. And there's going to be volumes and volumes written on this with people that are very qualified and profound in their thinking about it. But one thought that I had is is simply that when we acquire riches, they allow us to sort of alleviate some of the the bit of suffering due to our mortal condition. And uh, they can be little things here and there. And when we have that suffering alleviated, we um, aren't as likely to understand and empathize and uh, learn compassion through experience about what it is to be human and how we are supposed to love others. And so I think that even the small inconveniences of life that create whatever you might call suffering um, can be important to our keeping our our minds set and our perception or our perspective, I should say, set in the right direction. And that it's very easy for wealth to create a distraction that uh, allows us to look the other way on that. And so I think that's part of what's happening with this people here. You know, in verse 12, it says, and the people began to be distinguished by ranks according to their riches and their chances for learning. Yea, some were ignorant because of their poverty and others did receive great learning because of their riches. Um, and I've always loved verses 13 and 14. Some were lifted up in pride and others were exceedingly humble. Some did turn, return railing for railing while others would receive railing and persecution and all manner of afflictions and would not turn and revile again, but were humble and penitent before God. And thus there became a great inequality in the land, insomuch that the church began to be broken up, yea, insomuch that in the thirtieth year the church was broken up in all the land, save it were among a few of the Lamanites, who were converted unto the true faith, and they would not depart from it. For they were firm and steadfast and immovable, willing with all diligence to keep the commandments of the Lord. So as we've talked multiple times about the apparent ability of the Lamanites, uh, maybe due to just their cultural upbringing, to maintain their steadfastness in the faith greater than... or more uh, readily, I should say, than the average, your average Nephite. Here we have them being the ones that really are, are holding on to the faith and staying true to it. And, uh, you know, I, I can't help but wonder again, you know, if there's some, some sort of cultural component that 
helped contribute to the Lamanite uh, tendency to act this way or to be this way. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. So one of the one thing I wanted to go back to with chapter four that you know this is uh, a little bit out of the the strain that we we're, we're direction we're going in, but uh, one thing I wanted to look at in chapter four real quick. You know, back when we talked about the war chapters with Amalekiah and Lahontai, and I said you know it's it's possible there was a missed opportunity by the Nephites there to go and reconcile with their Lamanite enemies and and really prevent potentially this war or or something you know they, they there was a missed opportunity it right. seems i see a potentially missed opportunity here in chapter 4 when you have basically the gadianton robbers on the run in verse 20 it seems and it came to pass that the wild game became scarce in the wilderness insomuch that the robbers were about to perish with hunger and goodness like what if instead of sending their armies to kill them right now, they sent missionaries with food? And in verse 21, it says the Nephites were continually marching out by day and by night and falling upon their armies and cutting them off by thousands and by tens of thousands. Verse 24, and now Gidgadoni being aware of their design and knowing of their weakness because of the want of food and the great slaughter which had been made among them. Therefore, he did send out his armies in the nighttime and to cut off the way of their retreat and to place his armies in the way of their retreat. And uh, here, you know, I just, I, I ask the question, is there a missed opportunity here? I, I, it seems obvious that the Nephites were not in a place uh, spiritually to even consider that this would be the time that we need to go preach the gospel to the Gadianton robbers. But man, I look back at the Lamanites in, in Helaman, I don't remember what chapter it is, and I feel like they would have seen that. I feel like they would have seen this opportunity. And so I just wonder, like, in my life, what what opportunities do I miss because I'm so tied up in, in this or that or um, angry about something? What opportunities do I really miss to minister to another person um, when I might be inclined to punish them or or laugh at their misfortune? I could instead, you know, reach out to them. And 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 again, you know, I just I wonder if there's something missed here that would have potentially more permanently. Because it's, it says that they, they put an end, in verse 6 of chapter 5, they put an end to all those wicked and secret abominable combinations, which were, there was so much wickedness and so many murders committed. And I wonder, again, if putting an end to that, those in the way of war, was just not as permanent or as useful or as righteous, I could say a way of going about it as could have been. And, and you know, that there's so much left out by, by Mormon here that we just have to speculate a lot on this. But, uh, but still comparing it to the record itself, I see another missed opportunity there by them. Yeah. Yeah, I completely missed that too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a Nephite. 
<laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, we should have done that. Ah, oh, crap. We didn't. And then we had to kill him. That just, yeah, that seems like a, seems like a huge missed opportunity. Oh, yeah, well, I'm going to put that in the margin so I can come back to that. I'm going to do that right now. It's like, it's like a missed opportunity. Oh, so that's, that's absolutely fascinating. Why is it that we as a culture, and we do we still do it now, and I don't think it's terribly an American thing. I think it's a world thing. Maybe a Western so no, it, no, it's not even a Western so it's a it's a human nature thing. <laughs> yeah. Why is it that we are always struggling to find justice instead of mercy and to establish justice instead of mercy? You know, the preamble to the Constitution, nor does it say to be able to perform and to have equi- equity and mercy. You know, it, no, it's it's to ensure domestic tranquility and provide for and and to provide for justice, right? It's it's that's what we want. That's what we crave. And then there's this little voice in the back of our head that says, well, yeah, but you should think about mercy. And we're like, yeah, whatever. Let's think about justice right now, and then, and then we'll think about mercy later on. Let everybody get what they deserve. And it's this getting what everybody deserves kind of stuff that wh- – why do we do that? Why does that frame our narrative? Why is that the thing that we always go to? Why is it that – you know, it's, it's distrusting. As you were saying that, Ben, I'm thinking, well, if they would have fed the army, then at that point they would have just – you know, taking the food from the Nephites, strengthen themselves, and then went and killed the Nephites. They would have just been feeding their enemies to keep coming after them. And see, that's the fear talking. That's maybe. the ego. That's the natural man. And maybe, right. But at that point, it's like, when do we just stop looking for justice? But perhaps. When- <sighs> yeah. You know, you're talking about that like it, it is true that it seems that most of our our institutions that we create as a society in general in terms of government or whatever seem to be kingdoms of justice right they're they're seeking to always you know give people their fair share or, or whatever they deem just and Christ when he came, offers us a completely different kingdom. What does he say? My kingdom is not of this world. Because this world is just always concerned about justice. And Christ says, my kingdom is not of this world. This is a kingdom of mercy. And it just operates on a completely different premise from the way that that the world tells us we have to operate. You have to do it this way. Even the Nephites' whole perception is around this. You know, um, after they uh, win the battle here, and uh, in verse 33, it says, And their hearts were swollen with joy unto the gushing out of many tears because of the great goodness of God and delivering them out of the hands of their enemies. And they knew it was because of their repentance and their humility that they had been delivered from an everlasting destruction. So you can look at this in two ways, and I I wonder really what the Nephite frame of mind was in this very moment that this is happening. And the, the implication of the verse is that they were grateful to the Lord for not having died. But man, tons of them did die. Like thousands and thousands of them died in these battles. And here they are, you know, giving thanks to the Lord for not dying. And it's because of their humility and repentance. Well, what about all the people that died? 
So the other way to look at this, which I think would be what we could learn from the scriptures, but not necessarily what the people themselves were experiencing, is what it really does say in that last part. Because of their repentance and their humility that they had been delivered from an everlasting destruction. Well, everlasting destruction to them might have meant death, but on a spiritual side, you know, would be something more akin to spiritual death. And we overcome that through our humility and repentance by by experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ. And so <clears throat> I did, I see that so interesting that they that they're all of their gratitude is over these this temporal salvation, right? And and that their repentance and humility really should have been much more concerned uh, with having been spiritually saved because of their repentance and their humility, not temporally saved. That was just, you know, icing on the cake, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, I just pulled up a quote that I posted on, on Facebook from uh, a while back. It's from Bishop Gene Robinson. And he says, it's funny, isn't it? That you can preach a judgmental and a vengeful and an angry God and nobody will mind. But you start preaching a God that's too accepting, too loving, too forgiving, too merciful, too kind. That's when you get into trouble. You know, so much like Thomas Merton said, is so much depends on our idea of God. And I've taken that quote to heart. And I, I like studying intellectual history. I like finding out where thing where ideas came from. And it's interesting to see how so much of our society is framed by how we view God. Do we view God as vengeful, as punishing, as exacting, as this justice God? If Is that our primary view of God? Because if it is, that's how we're going to treat each other. That's the standard we're going to hold to each other. That's the thing that we're going to move and act according to. Because we're going to ju justify it by that's the way God is. And this is the way righteousness is. And then we will always self-justify to act that way. But the thing is, is when we start to take in that God is completely accepting, to all loving, all forgiving, all merciful, all kind, it's interesting is that especially when we live in the justice and the vengeful and the angry God mindset, the minute we start hearing about an accepting, loving, forgiving, merciful, kind God, we always have to start creating caveats for it. Yes, but it, it's it just, it's like a mental thing. It like swells up. You almost just you can't wait to get out. Just like yeah, that's fine. God's loving, but and this yes, but discipleship. You know, there's a an article I read years ago that was posted on LDS Liberty that was entitled "Yes, but discipleship," and it's this whole thing about how truth is spoken and our responses, yes, but, and we always want to find a caveat where that particular truth doesn't apply to us, or at least apply to us so much that we have to change. And that's the fascinating part is that when we put all the caveats of the gospel and all the gospel message to where we have to change very little, and it actually starts to support our lives, you know, I, I'm not looking for a God that agrees with me on everything. And in fact, the more I find, <laughs> the more I come and I have experiences of sitting with God, the more I realize just how ridiculous my ego is. 
but I realize how patient and how loving God is. When I sit with God and I'm in those moments and there's just no spirit of judgment. Um, you know, I, I often wondered in James chapter one, when it says that, you know, if any of you like wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not. And I'd always wondered what that abradeth not was there for. You know, and it was taught in seminary about how, you know, God's not going to make fun of you. He's not going to put you down. He's not going to make you feel lacking. He's not going to do anything for you to ask questions and come to him. And I also wondered, well, why would he do that? And then as I got older, I started to realize how the majority of our construct of God is that he doesn't just sit with you in your pain. He doesn't just sit with you in the moments when you're making mistakes or you're living lives that aren't, you know, up to who and what you are and your privileges are. But he just sits with you. You know, I, th- I think for the, if I'm honest with myself, for the most of my life, if I'm thinking about God, I'm thinking about a God who's there, who will be with me, will sit with me, who'll love me, but is secretly judging me. And who's secretly the, over there, just kind of in the corner, like, yeah, I, I get it, but you're, you're just, you're just not living up to it yet. And, and so there's like this unspoken secret judgment that God has against me. And it's taken a lot to get rid of that. And it's, it's taken a lot to repent from that, to be able to see God new without the judgment, without the, without the finger pointing, without the ulterior motive. And just to realize that God will just sit there with us. And so the knee-jerk reaction when you brought that up, Ben, about the missed opportunities, I still have little knee-jerk reactions, even after all these years of studying peace and like, yeah, but yeah, but if you do something kind, they're, they're going to turn around, they're, they're going to they're going to take advantage of you for it. <laughs> and the response is, yeah. well, don't make yourself yeah. so vulnerable. You know, you're yeah, being right. naive. <laughs> don't be so naive. Don't be so yeah. kind that it leads you to naivety. Right. Uh, well, that's true, you know, but, but faith in Christ is not naivety. And, and there is such thing as a naivety in the world, right? Or someone who just believes that, uh, that if they, if they do good to others, others will always do good to them. And, uh, you know, there's there's some value in that. But that is not what the the Christ, the way of Christ suggests and teaches us. It is not a transactional thing. It is not, I'm going to do good to others so that they will do good to me. It's, I'm going to do good to others because I love them because that is what Christ, my Savior, has taught me to do. I see, you know, you were talking about James 1.5 and, and sitting with God and him not abrading and, and, and stuff like that. I think of this word that we've recently come across in Helaman um, that we see sometimes in scriptures about how the Lord chastises his people. And, uh, and you know, the the world's way of chastising and the Lord's way of chastising are, are very different. And, uh, my, my wife has done a good job of explaining this to me when I had a discussion with her about it before, you know, she, she talks about how, when someone in the world would, would chastise, you know, it's, it's sort of the intent is to put you down or belittle you to, to try to, to punish you or, or, uh, make you realize how insignificant you are so that you're put in your place, Right. But the Lord's chastisement is a totally different thing, and there should be a different word for it in the scriptures. But the scriptures are mostly translations and their perceptions, and it's what we get. And, and, and so you read them, and you say, okay, 
this isn't the word for what I experience, but I know what you're talking about. And let me tell you what it's like when the Lord chastises me. And it has nothing to do with him putting me down or belittling me or making me feel like less. And it has everything to do with him uplifting me and making me want to be more and want to follow him. And it's just a totally different experience, right? And what's amazing about scripture is that you run across all these words and you can have a thought or perception about something, but until you actually experience it, that is really empty because it's all based on worldly descriptions of interactions between people. But what we're trying to get at is your interaction and experience with God. And so we're using all these words, but when you go experience it, then you'll understand what we mean by chastisement. And we don't mean what the world says it means, right? And uh, so that that has let me look at scripture and the way that scripture describes things in, in a different way is as more like, look, I'm, I'm telling you about this experience. And once you've experienced it, the scriptures will make so much more sense. You know, that reminds me, Ben, probably the, the most transformative moment, the, the one where I experienced the love of God for the first time in my life, where it really sunk in and I knew I was tasting the fruit of the tree. Like I, I knew it. You know, there's a, a time in my life there were there were a few things I was like, maybe I need to go talk to the bishop about a few things in my life. Like really early on, um, before I'd met my wife, and I was like, maybe I should go talk to the bishop. So I went in to talk to the bishop, and and I hadn't really decided if I wanted to like talk about these things yet. But I, I sat down. I remember being in front of the bishop's office, and I remember looking at him and he's like, Hey Shiloh, how are you? And I'm like, I'm doing well. How are you? And he's like, good. What can I do for you? <laughs> I just sat there in silence for like five seconds. And then I started talking to myself. I'm like, well, say something. Well, if you don't say anything, he's going to know something's wrong. Well, now you haven't said anything. Now he knows something's wrong. Now you got to say what you're here to say. So I'm having this conversation in my head right now. 10 seconds have gone by. I'm like, well, this is ridiculous. You've been here for 10 seconds now and you have <sighs> So I'm having this You're conversation. You're like King Lamoni. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's exactly, it's exactly like what's going on. I felt, I felt that. And, uh, you know, the next thing. So in training salesmen, you and I have both done door-to-door sales. That's how you and I met. And whenever you train a brand new salesman, especially a younger salesman, maybe one who hasn't been on a mission yet, <laughs> the funniest thing is that the very first door they're ever going to go to and to do on their own. And you're just standing back watching them do their thing and, and fail miserably. And it's the funniest thing in the world. But inevitably, that salesman is going to take this really, really deep breath. And in like 30 seconds, going to word vomit everything that they know about the entire thing. And <laughs> yeah. hey, right? You've seen this happen. <laughs> and then just and then just like start panting afterwards. And uh, I feel like I have like five stories of this happening. And this was me with the bishop. And so finally I take this really big, deep breath and I pause and then I go to like, just like whatever I've got to say. Right. And I don't remember whatever I had to say and all, but what I do remember is the bishop smiling and putting his hand up to stop me. And he says, hold on, Shiloh. 
says before you before you go on, there's two things you need to know. He says, first, you need to know how much I love you. And the second thing, which is far more important, is you need to know how much the Savior loves you. And it was in that moment with that one bishop's declaration of his love for me and of his honest, sincere testimony of God's love for me to date at this point in my life I've never been so chastised in all my life. I have never been so open, disarmed, and standing completely bare before my Creator. It was that one moment of a bishop's declaration of love that cut deeper into the core of my soul than anything ever had and ever has since. I was brought in that moment directly into the presence of God's love. And it was the most severe rebuke I've ever received. It's almost my it's also one of my most cherished memories. And so when you say, Ben, that we use words like chastise and rebuke, we typically, in our natural man, egoistic way, understand that to mean physical or shame or some kind of put down. But in that moment, I was rebuked and chastised in a way that lifted me up to such celestial heights that I had never even perceived I could be in. See, it's in that chastisement God lifted me up. And that's where I find a lot of harmony with how we're talking about Alma the Younger, like in Alma 36, when he is in that hell, and all of a sudden it's a release, and he's brought into the presence of God, and there's just pure love. So yeah, my, the rest of my life has been kind of going back to that moment and trying to reconnect with that. So in a lot of my repentance processes, that's, that's kind of become a guiding light for me is to see just how awesome God's love and transformative it really is. That a lot of the things we talk about with God, a lot of things we, we project onto God really is the more of our natural man. But man, there's a few of those moments that come around in our lives that really show us just how awesome God really is. So <laughs> moving on, we have here in chapter six, we have chapter six and seven yet. And a lot of these are, we can summarize these really easily because we have Satan's influence that comes in with in chapter six, 
And this comes in from 15 to eight from 18. And what I think is interesting here is, is this is really reflective of the savior's temptation right before he, he right after he is uh, being tempted or he's being fasted, right? He's fasted for four days and 40 nights and just before the Beatitudes. But Satan isn't any more cunning than he was with Jesus. He's still coming after the pride, power, riches, and all the vain things, which is exactly what he tempted Christ with. So here, right here in third Nephi, we see Satan's influence on the Nephites and on the Gideon robbers. And of what they had been was about pride, power, authority, riches, and just the vain things of the world. And usually vain things of the world has to deal with the honors of men, the power of men, because there is a very real power that is associated with the popularities of men. And this kind of celebrity and like political power. I got a lot of experience of being around that. And there's a very real power that's there. And that is one of the things that I know that Satan entices us with today. And with that, we end up having the chief judges, you know, the chief judges were the higher judges and the lower judges. And the lower judges started to kill off the prophets. Of course, this was against the law, but they did it anyway. And, and there, there was no real reprival. And this is where things begin now to break apart. That now we begin to see that now is the end of the reign of the judges. It was never really a popular thing to begin with. You know, the kings for 500 years and from the get-go, these people didn't really want to be self-governing. You know, there was usually a little bit more of a people who wanted to have this kind of self-government judge kind of thing going on. But they just had a lot of people who kept on wanting to go back to kings. And I had everything to do with power. Exactly what King Benjamin and King, I rather King Mosiah had said at the beginning, shouldn't be. And so we have a lot of returning back to those one monarchical. Is that a word? Monarchical? Monarchical? Monarchical, I think, is a word. Okay. I don't know. I'll look it up later. <laughs> You'll look it up later. Okay. <laughs> but we have we have these kings that come about, and now we have tribes, and now we've broken apart into tribes. Jacob is the head of one of the larger tribes. He ends up getting some cunning where he realizes that he's part of one tribe. The other tribes are going to come after him. He takes off really fast. He picks up into some dissenters and he, he through a lot of just different coming ends up kind of ending up on top, almost kind of like a, kind of like an Amulek and like a, an, an old Amulek. So I'm, I'm laughing because it's so late. Shiloh, the word is monarchist. <laughs> Not monarchical. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are recording this later on in the evening. And so <laughs> we may or may not keep this. This may be edited out, but why don't we may keep it anyway. At any rate, we're here at the end of, uh, end, end of seven. We now have the complete dissolution of all of the, the Nephite way of life and the Lamanite way of life, really. And at the very end, we still have, we have Mormon who really wants us to know that Nephi is still going around and Nephi is still going around. He's still baptizing. And the baptism was a very central part of their theme. So the end of chapter seven, now I would have you remember. <laughs> now you have to know Mormon's really interested in us knowing something. If he's going to say, now I would have you remember. Right. That there was none who were brought into repentance who were not baptized with water. Therefore, they were ordained of Nephi, men into this ministry that is 
such as would come unto them as should be baptized with water. And this is a witness and a testimony before God and unto the people that they had repented and received a full remission of their sins. And there were many in the commencement of this year that were baptized unto repentance, and thus the more part of the year did pass away. So now we are 32 years after the sign, and next week we start getting into all of the destruction, everything post everything post Christ coming, which is a fascinating discussion. Yeah, so uh, we're going to be having several weeks here of the words of Christ. This is going to be, I feel like it's going to be a completely different discussion, you know, when we get to Christ here, because this is a completely the defining moment of the entire Book of Mormon. Everything before this has has been leading up to this, or if, and if not leading up to this, a an explanation of how the people are are trying to follow Christ and failing in so many different ways. And uh, so, <clears throat> the the way that this is discussed, you know, the pace of the discussion is completely different. You know, it turns from a history of the people and their wars and contentions and some of the ministering and preaching and some of their righteousness to words of Christ and the people just listen. I mean, it's just, it's just a completely different tone of scripture altogether. Yeah, it really does. It, it completely changes speed. It changes tone. It changes the way that the Nephite, there are so many Nephite narratives that we're going to be able to show and bring out that we've talked about in the past about how Christ completely redefines the way that they thought they were supposed to live and a new way of living into the future. And that's just, I'm just so excited. We got about four weeks worth of just talking about Christ's words and about how all that's going to fit together. And I don't know how we're going to get into that because that that really is just, I mean, we could just spend the rest of the time there and I'd be completely happy, but... We'll keep on going. Well, we might do something like we did with the war chapters where we we have sort of like an introductory episode with a, a general discussion, and then we get into particulars of the discussion of the separate chapters. I don't know. Maybe something like that would make, would make sense. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be excited for it. Cool. Well, until next week, thank you everybody for listening. And I am Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>